In the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, amen. Okay, so last couple of weeks have been kind of heavy as far as sermons go. A couple of weeks ago, we watched as Jesus entered into Jerusalem, called the Triumphal Entry, rode in on a donkey, humble. And then as he approached Jerusalem, he started to cry because what he was bringing to the world was to rule the world as the Messiah with peace, but we didn't recognize it. And we missed it totally. And so he begins to weep over Jerusalem that we couldn't help but choose our own way and reject the way of Jesus, the way of shalom, wholeness, peace. And then last week, we saw what the result is of choosing our own way, uh, especially when we choose our own way and still call it Jesus. Uh, That if we're not careful, we can end up choosing a false Jesus over the Jesus of peace. Uh, We saw how we can fool ourselves into thinking that just because we're part of a crowd that agrees with us, then all of our personal responsibility for harmful things can be diminished. All of those things culminated in the greatest tragedy to ever happen. We murdered God. Humanity commits deicide in favor of our own way. And in that moment of deicide, Jesus is crowned king. In the moment of deicide, the almighty God, creator of the universe, submitted to the way of peace and subverted the way of Rome and sin by pronouncing forgiveness. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. A new kingdom was founded, not on the backs of war horses or power or sin, but on forgiveness of sins. On the cross, the sins of the world are forgiven. And then Jesus passes away, hanging on a Roman cross. That's where we left off. A lot of heaviness last couple of weeks. And then today we have a lot to learn. Uh, Because, as you know, Jesus doesn't stay dead. We happen to know the end of the story, don't we? Uh, He defeats the powers of darkness and rises from the dead. Hold on to that phrase. Jesus defeats the powers of darkness and rises from the dead. I think we all have a picture, at least, of the rises from the dead part. Um, we have seen some images. We, we have a, an, an idea of what that means in our head. We've at least seen movies, right? We've seen The Passion of the Christ. We've seen um, The Greatest Story Ever Told, Jesus Christ Superstar, Son of God, The Life of Jesus Christ, many, many more. There's even a Lego version of The Passion of the Christ, and they all show the resurrection of Jesus. Um, all of those movies show the resurrection. We have seen many depictions of of the resurrection. And why wouldn't we? It's the greatest story to ever exist. We're pretty clear on the resurrection. We have some sort of image in our brain of what the resurrection looks like. But there's another part of the story that we haven't seen very much of, at least not for the last 500 years. There's the part of the story that isn't exactly clear. There's a part of the story that's harder for us to think of an image for, and it's the he defeated the powers of darkness part of the story. 
What do we mean when we say that? If you ask most of the world's Christians, if you said, what does it mean that Jesus defeated the powers of darkness? What does that mean? They would be able to think of a specific image of what that means. If I were to ask this room, or at least maybe all or the majority of evangelical Christians in America, I don't think that there would be an image that comes to your mind, a specific image. The odds are nothing really comes to mind. That's no fault of our own, really. Uh, We tend to not know much about exactly how Jesus defeats the powers of darkness because we are products of our own environment, our own subculture of Christianity. And in our own subculture of Christianity, the doctrine of what's called the harrowing of hell has been long forgotten at best and blatantly ignored at worst. And this begs the question, what is the harrowing of hell? You may not have ever heard that term before. Uh, In short, it is the events of Holy Saturday during Easter week. You have Maundy Thursday, communion. You have Good Friday, the execution, Holy Saturday. And then Resurrection Sunday, right? Except there's a good chance that you grew up skipping Holy Saturday altogether because you didn't know that there was anything to celebrate. You didn't know that there was a story to be told about Holy Saturday. The harrowing of hell is that one line in the Apostles' Creed that we have on our website, he descended into hell or he descended into death. It's the reason why we can say things like, death, where is your sting? Hell, where is your victory? And before we get to the actual resurrection itself, we need to know what makes the resurrection itself so special. Jesus defeated the powers of darkness. Jesus ascends into heaven because he first descended into death. So today may feel like a lot of new information for you. You may have never heard this story before, and that's okay. But I want you to know that the story I'm about to tell you is as old as Christianity itself is. In fact, it's so old, it's called the classical view. Uh, The story I will share with you today, the harrowing of hell, is the story of how Jesus defeated the powers of darkness specifically. You should have an image of what that means by the end of today. I'm actually a little nervous to teach this (laughs) because it does tend to bring up more questions than answers. Um, because we belong to this minority of Christians that know almost nothing about this story. Questions like, well, what does this mean for what happens after we die? This story does not answer that. So put all those, those things away and just have an open mind and a humble heart, and we will see what the beauty of the resurrection is. So I will be in Luke 24, 1 through 12. You can turn there in your Bibles. There's Bibles in front of you or under you. If you don't have a Bible, take that home. If you want to learn how to read or use the Bible, you can email me. Uh, Luke 24, 1 through 12. But before we get into our text, which is the resurrection itself, we need the context for the resurrection. And the context for the resurrection is the harrowing of hell. We need to go back to the prophet Zechariah. Uh, to get us started. It's Zechariah 9, 9 through 11. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. Uh, 
But you'll remember most of this passage if you were here two weeks ago when we read this passage for the triumphal entry. I want to take us back to the prophets because that's how old this story is. It goes all the way back to the origins of the Messiah. Zechariah 9, 9 through 11. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be cut off and he shall command peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, Because of my blood covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. That, my friends, is called a foreshadow. Uh, We already saw the foreshadow of the triumphal entry in that first part of the text there a couple weeks ago. And today we see another foreshadow of what will become known as the harrowing of hell. The harrowing of hell is just a medieval English term for Christ's descent into death and his victory over Satan. That's it. That's all it really is. Um, It's the specific events that happen between Jesus's death and the resurrection. It is deeply rooted in scripture. This idea that God would deal with death in a dramatic way, uh, it developed with the biblical prophets, uh, mostly Isaiah, Zechariah, Hosea, and Daniel. And at this point in Israel's history, these prophets are all mostly contemporaries of each other. Some of them knew each other. Uh, at this point in Israel's history, um, they, uh, they're looking for, for, for hope because they're suffering. Uh, they've been living as exiles in what's called Babylon. It was a, an ancient empire in what is today modern-day Iraq. Uh, they watched as Babylon destroyed the temple of God in Jerusalem. Uh, they marched with their families all the way to Babylon as prisoners of war, off to live different lives in a different country, to speak a different language, um, to live as entirely different people altogether and lose their Hebrew identity. They lost everything. So the idea of, well, God isn't going to let this injustice slide, even if it's not in my lifetime, begins to develop. And for many, they would live out their lives in Babylon, holding on to the hope that one day God would make it all right again. This is where the hope and the doctrine of resurrection develops in the Jewish faith. One day I will get a new body and God will make everything right again. The hope uh, was that death would one day become a friend rather than an enemy because they hoped that it would give way to a new body and a new life that wasn't stuck in injustice in Babylon. So, While you're dead in Sheol, you're just waiting to be raised up one day, like a prisoner in prison, waiting to be freed again. And that's why Zechariah says things like, for you also, because of my blood covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free 
from the waterless pit. It's a grave. And it's why you also get other prophets like Hosea saying things like, shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, I will be your destruction. Come, let us return to the Lord, for it is he who, has, who was torn, and he will heal us. He has been struck down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live forever. There's always been this hope that one day, death, Sheol, hell, the depths, all of these things would be destroyed and their prisoners would be set free and raised from the dead. There's always this hope of God rescuing us from death. This is the doctrine that not only gets Israel through some tough times, but it's also a realization of the character of God. God rescues his people. God sets captives free. God makes things right again. And in Jesus, we see this doctrine play out in a specific way. So here is the harrowing of hell. It's pretty simple. Humanity committed deicide. Jesus is executed on the cross. After Jesus died, he descends into Sheol, hell, death, the depths. But Jesus doesn't descend into hell as a victim. He descends into hell as a victor. Jesus descends as a victor. And what does that mean? It means that Jesus wasn't sentenced to hell. Jesus charges in to hell to defeat sin and death and take everyone up back with him. He takes what belongs to him, his people. He rescues the prisoners. And death is finally changed from an enemy to a friend because He is then raised from the dead. He ransacked hell. He defeated Satan, bound him up, rescued humanity, reversed death, and then he took the keys along with him as a way of saying, this belongs to me now. The presence of Jesus now reaches everywhere. You've probably heard the idiom of people saying, well, what is hell? And you've probably heard something like, well, hell is just the absence of God. But the truth is that the harrowing of hell teaches us that when Jesus is king, nothing is absent from the presence of Jesus, not even hell itself. Jesus gets his way. Okay, has anybody heard this story before? <laughs> I know Jesse has, and maybe, maybe that's it. Um, you might be thinking, that just sounds like a weird story based on tradition. And uh, you're not entirely wrong. It is a weird story, mostly because we don't know anything about it, our minority of of Christians here in America. Uh, But it is a story that is deeply rooted in Scripture. You may have heard some of these passages before, and maybe they didn't make any sense to you, but in light of this story, listen to these passages from the Old and the New Testament. Matthew 12, 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a sea monster, so for three days and three nights, the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth. A metaphor for Sheol. Ephesians 4, 8 through 9. 
When he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive. He gave gifts to his people. When it says he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the same one who ascended for above all, far above all the heavens and the earth so that he might fill all things. 1 Peter 3, 18-19 For Christ also suffered for the sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he also went and made proclamations to the spirits in prison. 1 Peter 4, 6 For this is the reason the gospel was proclaimed even to the dead. Psalm 22, 29. To him indeed shall all who sleep in the earth below bow down. Before him shall bow and all who go down to the dust shall live with him forever. Daniel 12, 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall be awake. And Revelation 17, 1 through 18, 17, 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But, the, but he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead and see, I am alive forever and ever. And I have the keys to death and Hades. There's a few more but I think you get the idea. When Jesus dies, he's not just dead. He's reversing the course of history. He's setting captives free. He's defeating the powers of darkness and sin, and he's taking the keys with him. This is exactly how we are able to say worshipfully, O death, where is your sting? O hell, where is your victory? Death cannot have any sting because Jesus took it away. Hell cannot have a victory because Jesus was victorious over hell. In the death of Jesus Christ, death and hell have died. If that was new to you and felt like a weird story, I get it. I'm not setting a new doctrine for the church or anything. This is an open hand issue. Uh, So, and... It's only weird, I will say, because our little corner of Christianity has made it weird. Our theology of how Jesus wins is so underdeveloped that we literally skip an entire day of Easter week because we don't know what to do with it. But this is a story as ancient as Christianity itself. I have this icon here. Uh, You can't see it on the live stream, I apologize, but This is a painting of this specific event of how Jesus specifically beats the powers of darkness. If you want to see it, I'll explain it to you after service. Uh, It's about 400 years after Jesus is when this painting was done. The big picture here is Jesus defeats the powers of darkness. He really actually does. And now we have a picture of what that actually means. I don't normally get into the text this late, but now we can read our text. Uh, Luke 24, 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb 
taking the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. The women were terrified and they bowed their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified on the third day, rise again? And then they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all of this to the eleven and all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter got up, and he ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and then he went home amazed at what just happened. I, I get the absolute privilege of studying the Bible for a living. Um, I did it before my master's degree. I definitely did it during my master's degree. And now I get to do it for the benefit of others. Uh, and I have come to one definite conclusion. I love all the intricacies of scholarship, the variety of interpretation of scripture and various expressions of the Christian faith. I love translating Greek and Hebrew. I love to disagree about the finer points of theology with people who are much smarter than me. I love learning about the Bible as much as I love learning the Bible. But there is one thing that I have grasped onto, one conclusion that I actually have. Uh, Within this portion of Scripture are the most important words in history. These seven little words are the reason that I am a Christian. These seven words are the central words of existence. In all of heaven and earth, verse 6, he is not here, but has risen. Without these seven words, Christianity is just a nice way to live. It's a philosophy of life to follow, no more or less relevant than Platonism or Stoicism or humanism. Without he is not here but has risen, we might as well be nihilistic hedonists, just enjoying the pleasures of life until we die. These words have changed the world. Because of these words, what was lost to us in the garden so, so long ago has been restored to the entire world. God and humans can be together again. They can be at at one again. That's what the word atonement means. Atonement is just two English words, at and one, smushed together, atone. This is what to be at one with God looks like. This is what we call salvation. What is salvation? Salvation is to be free from sin and death, and to have the death with a capital D, and to have the partition between God and people broken down, to enter into complete communion with God and to be at one with him forever. This is salvation. It is the hope of death being changed from an enemy to a friend and it becoming a reality. 
The women get to the tomb expecting the expected to see Jesus doing nothing, laying on a slab in a tomb. But what the women see is the unexpected. He's not there. And more than that, he is not dead anymore. He has life. And all of us who were dead in our own sins, preferring our own way, worshiping the way of Rome, rotting away as we loved ourselves more than we loved God and others, all of us also have life with him. We are not subject to the ways of death and sin anymore. We are subject to the way of Jesus Christ. Wholeness. This is the gospel. Jesus subverts the way of sin by the way of peace. He is murdered as an innocent victim. He pronounces forgiveness as king. He descends into hell not as a victim, but as a victor. He binds up Satan, binds the strong man, if you want a biblical term, takes the keys of death and brings up humanity out of the grave with him. And now you and I can be at one with God again. And the kingdom of God takes off running. And you get to be the person to tell everybody about that. Jesus is the victorious king. And some people don't know that yet. You get to help with that. It's your story now. You go live it and you go share it. Okay, that last part was yet another foreshadow. Uh, Luke's crescendo still isn't over, believe it or not. Jesus rises from the dead and he's still not done. He still has some unfinished business to attend to. And next week, we're going to follow Jesus on this obscure little pathway. It's called a road in the Middle East, but to us, it's a little pathway, and he meets up with two people that used to follow him. It's on this road to a city called Emmaus. We're going to follow Jesus on that little road, and we're going to follow Jesus on his last steps on earth before he ascends into heaven. That is next week, and then we will look at the beginning of Jesus's life as we start Advent. So let's pray together. Jesus, you defeated the powers of sin and darkness. Father, we thank you that through scripture, through tradition, through time, through wisdom, you've given us an image of what this means. Help us to look upon it and worship you more for it. You are the risen king. You are the one who is worthy to be worshipped, and you're the only one who could defeat the powers of darkness. And for that, we submit to you, our King. We love you. We ask for the grace to love you more. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Amen.